Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, I'm Peter Moore. Today I'm talking to the million copy best-selling author Giles Milton about the story he tells in his book Checkmate in Berlin. Together we go back to the dramatic year when the post-war world started to take shape. Well, I shall begin by saying Giles Milton, welcome to Travels Through Time. It's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. You've written such a range of fascinating books over the past 25 years, from Nathaniel's Nutmeg, set in the 17th century, to works like Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare, and a book that we're going to be talking about today, which I have here. I should hold it up for um, people who are watching this on video later on, um, Checkmate Berlin. Fabulous book. Um, We'll be talking more about the story in that in a moment. But there's a great breadth there. I want to ask a general question about how do you go about finding your stories? Well, that's always a tricky one because uh, my all of my books really have been based on a lot of primary sources, letters, diaries, unpublished material. That's a stuff I love to deal with that. And it's not always easy to find because um, a lot of personal you know, diaries and letters are not stored in archives. You certainly won't find them in the National Archives. So often you have to go in search of you know, descendants of the people you're writing about, tra- track down the families and see if they have stuff in, you know, hidden away in boxes in their attics and, um, and what, what have you. And very often uh, you find that that's the case. And they do have, you know, grandfather, great grandfather's diary, which no one's looked at for years. And you start investigating and looking into these things and you discover that they sort of open a window onto another world. And what that's what I particularly like is personal stories that that um, rooted in, in somebody's experience, somebody often quite ordinary, but who found themselves in extraordinary situations and often um, at an extraordinary period of history. So through these personal stories, you can sort of open a window onto a chapter of history that people might not know that much about. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it, it almost has a journalistic flavour, the idea of getting out there talking to people. Because when when we think about research, and I teach um, writing as well, when you talk to them about research, there's always a bit of eye rolling that goes on. People have this idea that you have to march off to the Bodleian Library straight away and like kind of open these ancient books, and it's, it's hard graft. But I think what you're describing there is something of the excitement of the journalistic quest, which then, you know, kind of is as relevant in history writing as it might be in, a, you know, in a feature piece today. Absolutely. And I mean, even when you go to the, Nas- the National Archives, for example, you absolutely have no idea what you're going to find because the, all, the stuff is quite badly catalogued, you know. So yeah. you go along, you order up these these files and you, uh, you, you these boxes are brought to you. And you really don't know what you're going to find inside. And sometimes you go through, there's absolutely nothing. It's just boring sort of memos from Whitehall or something like that. And then one day you'll open one of these boxes, you'll open up and it will have just gold dust in it. You know, like these nuggets yeah. and, and, and just fantastic material. And certainly I found that with researching my Berlin book, I found all sorts of stuff I, I really was not expecting. And, and suddenly you think, oh, wow, that really changes everything. You know, what, what's been written about this period and, uh, and I've discovered a whole new thing here. 
and that's tremendously exciting and I get quite a kick out of that. Yeah, no, I can I can imagine. So the, the National Archives, for those of you uh, listeners who don't know, is just based outside of um, London, southwest London in Kew. And um, it's always a bit of a, as you say, it's a bit of a brand, st- brand tub when you go down there. You're not quite sure what you're going to pull out and the, the cataloguing isn't complete. I've had moments myself where you, you kind of find yourself reading a letter from the Duke of Wellington that you hadn't expected to find or something. Is there any particular archive in there or any moment of encounter with a bit of archival material that you'd like to share with us, which was just exciting, unexpected, and set you off on a completely different tangent? I mean, there's so many things that I've sort of unearthed in the archives. And, you know, the the, the excitement you get when you, you, you pull out a, a letter and you find it's actually been written by Churchill, you know, or by Stalin even, or by Roosevelt, you know, it's quite extraordinary when you're holding those in your hands. Um, but, uh, I mean, one of the things I found um, when I was researching this book, which really excited me, was... Um, and it's a story that's not at all known. It was a, it was a file um, called Operation Sparkler. And I opened it, I thought, what's all, all this about? And it was an extraordinary story of basically um, of, of the one of the greatest crime sprees in history, which was taking place in post-war Berlin, uh, where, you know, it was totally lawless in the city. There was enormous amounts of uh, precious metals, of all sorts of things, uh, penicillin, everything that could be traded on the black market was being traded on the black market. And the British, you know, felt that they ought to get some sort of grip on this. And, and so they sent out this rather wonderful um, detective, detective inspector from Scotland Yard to go and sort this out. And, and this file contained his account of the scale of the criminal activity uh, taking place in Berlin. And, and it was just absolutely fascinating. Very little known about. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it just opened a window on, you know, a, an extraordinary uh, explosion of crime taking place in the city. Um, you know, many listeners or viewers will have seen The Third Man, you know, all the story in Vienna and the penicillin racket going on. This was happening for real in Berlin, and this was Detective Inspector Tom Hayward's notes on his investigation, <laughs> and it was brilliant. And it's brilliant in a way because you not only have the period of history that people may or may not be familiar, but you have a point of view, don't you? Because it's written from the perspective of that character. Operation Sparkle is another of those wonderful kind of mission names that seem to crop up in the 1940s. And, and it all of a sudden feels novelistic and exciting and uncertain because you can build personality, you can build character around the history. I think that's, that is important uh, in my books is that the, the characters involved uh, in these stories, they're often larger than life. And, you know, it's no accident that they find themselves in these situations. They've been chosen because they're, they, they, they can do things. They can make things happen. They can change things, you know. And so when you, um, you know, when you find their personal diaries, etc., especially, well, we'll probably come on to talk about the main character in, in Checkmate in Berlin. The main character, uh, he was a really was a you know didn't pull his punches at all, and he wrote down, recorded everything in his daily diary, and that daily diary was in the archives of the Army Museum in America, and it's it's just fascinating because yeah, not only is he setting out what's taking place on the ground day by day, hour by hour in Berlin, but you get his spin on it as well. So which is which makes it fascinating. Obviously, you have to judge that with care and 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 use other source material as well. But it, it, it just, you know, I really felt by the end of the book, I knew this character really well. I knew what he was about. I knew what he was trying to do. And what he was trying to do was something very important. 
So just um, actually, I really like that. It's a rallying <laughs> cry for the researcher, and I think that's that's something we don't get enough of. Um, one 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 last general question before we dive in. Um, your focus has settled much more on World War II recently, and you've written quite a bit about Churchill, someone who you've mentioned already. I thought it'd be a good opportunity just to ask you, um, because we're going to talk about Churchill in, in a specific moment in um, in the story of Checkmate um, Berlin. But I, I was talking to another historian recently who said there's no historical character whose reputation has on, undergone such a revolution over the, the past maybe 20, 30 years as Churchill. And I wanted to... Um, just see if I could get something of your opinion on on that. What do you make of this revisionist um, look at Churchill? Is it something that you think was necessary, or are we are we just in a kind of process of shooting sacred cows at the moment? If that's um, well put, it is strange with with Churchill. I mean, you know, it's very difficult to judge Churchill from a, 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 a contemporary point of view in the here and now you know because he was of his period you know he was um he believed in empire he 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 had these beliefs which nowadays uh seem rather shocking but you know he was a man of his time uh and there's another uh side to Churchill which actually has long fascinated me and that's his championing of uh chemical and biological weapons you know which is actually not so well known about but yeah. um, and i wrote about it in you know when he was a minister of munitions after the first world war he uh, and he was really instrumental in sending british forces into russia to attack the red army attack the, the lenin's bolsheviks you know and he sent them there with vast quantities 50,000 uh, biological weapons basically uh, uh which were very nasty indeed but from Churchill's point of view, I mean, he he puts quite a, a robust defence of these weapons. He said, you know, I mean, is it really any worse to be, you know, have your head cut off with a sabre or something or be bayoneted in the stomach and to be killed by poison gas or whatever it was, you know? So, but that, you know, he's been highly criticised for that as well. Um, I just think it's 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 something of, of interest. I think it's ridiculous, really, to judge Churchill then by our standards now. Mm. I think what we're going to do in a moment is see Churchill at a very lively moment, and we can maybe tease out some of these threads a little bit more. So let's let's get into the history. Checkmate in in Berlin. Let's say a few words about the book first, actually, because it, it, it's been fabulously well received. It's a thrilling narrative history. Do you want Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the book in a kind of broad broad sense before we dive in close? Yeah. Well, I suppose what sort of set me off on this is the fact that. So many books each year are published about the Second World War, and almost nothing is published about the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And that, this is what really uh, fascinated me, because the world we live in today is essentially the world that was constructed in the really in the sort of four or five years that followed the end of the Second World War. And so I wanted to look at um, at how sort of the, the the world was going to be reconstructed in the aftermath of the Second World War. Um, who was going to get what? The the sort of divisions of the spoils of war, if you like. Um, and um, that that sort of set me off on this. And, and, and Germany obviously became the focus of this because Germany was the, one of the greatest problems. What the hell do we do with Germany after after the uh, at the end of the Second World War? And this and also what fascinated me with the was the grand gradual sort of falling apart of the alliance between the Soviet Union and the and the Western powers, of course. Now, what attracted me to this story in particular, I think, was that what I'm talking, what I'm describing, really, is a giant 
geopolitical history. But I didn't want to tell some boring, you know, dry as dust story. And what fascinated me was to focus on the four commandants of the four sectors of divided Berlin, because their personal relationships and really the, the fallout between them as, as gradually, particularly between the Soviet uh, commandant and the, his, his uh, Western so-called partners, that fallout, that, that per, their personal relationships seemed to me to perfectly mirror the geopolitical fallout that was taking place on, on, on you know, a much grander scale. So it enabled me to tell this big political story in a very intimate way through the relations and, and using the letters and diaries of those commandants on the ground. Mm, and it's got an eerie relevance to today, as, as as people will notice as we go through this conversation. Well, let me put to you the question that we put to everyone who comes on the podcast, which is a fun one, hopefully, and it gives you um, the opportunity for a bit of time travelling. If you could travel back to any calendar year in the past, Giles Martin, which year would you select? Well, I think... It would have to be the year in which my book begins, really, uh, which is 1945, which encompasses, well, it begins really, uh, 1945 begins with the great Yalta conference where the big three, you've got Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt meet together in the Crimea to really thrash out a new world order. The, the, the war is still taking place at this point, of course, it hasn't been won, but the Allies uh, the Western allies and their Soviet partner, they know they are going to win the war and it's time to plan the peace. Who is going to get what? OK, so that's a, that's a really good point. I want to just dwell for a moment on the very beginning. The the war by that point, you say, was won. Is that a definitive answer? I mean, it's a very... Um, we've, we've talked to various historians of the Second World War before and they've placed their marker in the sand at various different places, D-Day. Some people have said 1943 was the real turning point. But really, by the start of January 1945, the game was up, wasn't it? Totally. I mean, yeah, there are there are many dates you could pick out for where the turning point in the in the Second World War. But no, I mean, certainly by the time of the Alta Conference, the, they, they knew they'd won. The big three knew they were going to win. It was simply a matter of time and really um, a matter of, you know, also making sure that, you know, not too many human lives were lost in the process, basically. Mm. But yes, they knew they'd won. And they also knew that they were going to be the architects of the post-war world. Mm. They were going to decide who got what. So this is an immensely important moment in history, because these three all-powerful men, all victors in the war, are going to decide they're going to divide up the world and decide who gets what. Can I ask you about the, uh, this fourth uh, character who is maybe a little bit more marginal, but I know after D-Day you have the liberation of Paris, that's what I wanted to say, um, which is mm. led by the French, I believe, and um, de Gaulle is back in control. Do they play, like, so if we're in, in the beginning of 1945, are the, are the French or the new French regime led by de Gaulle, is that... Um, does that have any political capital at all? Or is it still very much marginalised because of the events of the past four years? That's a really interesting question. And the and the issue of France was raised and discussed uh, at length at the Alta Conference because, because the big three players have decided they're going to divide Germany into two separate parts, East and West. So the Soviets are going to get the East, the, the Americans and Brits are going to get the West. 
And then they think, well, what what should what should France get? You know, and they raise this issue, and Stalin says, well, why the hell should the French get anything? They haven't done anything in this war, you know. Uh, and eventually, after sort of repeated uh, the persistence of Roosevelt and Churchill. Stalin sort of reluctantly says, oh, well, okay, the French can have a slice of Germany, but it has to come out of your bit. I'm not giving them anything. So it was a real issue at the time, uh, should the French get anything? And, and really, actually, it was the Western partners who, who said, yes, they should. And so they will, get, they will get a chunk of Germany and they will get a slice of Berlin. And although in Berlin, they got the the poorest part of North Berlin, a really a, a part of the city that had really been reduced to rubble. It was already one of the poorest districts of the city, and so uh, and they were they in some senses they were to play quite a small role in everything that was to happen. However, um, because they have a sector, because they have a commandant, and because that commandant will have a veto on anything that's decided by the other command co commandants. It gives them an equal sort of uh, role in the running of the city. So this poor, demolished area of the city, they nevertheless, their voice will count equally with the Americans, the British and the Soviets. OK, one last question before we go to the first scene, because Checkmate is a book of maps, I have to say, and I'm, I'm a fan of maps. Um, if we are there at the beginning of January 1945, Whereabouts were the, uh, what was the position of the Eastern and the Western Front at that point? Do, had they crossed the borders into Germany already? Um, or was it like kind of a little bit? This is an absolutely critical point. And this really is going to um, weigh heavily on everything that happens. Because by the time of, of Yalta and, and shortly afterwards, the Red Army it's advancing at dramatic speed. It's taken over huge swathes of, ter of territory in, in Eastern Europe. It's moving into through Eastern Germany, Prussia, etc. Whereas the Western armies are still hundreds of miles from Berlin. And, and uh, I think it was Stalin, uh, either he said publicly or, or privately, I can't remember. He said, basically, um, people are going to get the powers are going to get the, the land that their that their armies are already controlling, basically. And he's looking at, at what the Red Army controls and thinks, that is going to be my territory at the end of this war. And he's very happy that the Western the Western allies are still a long way from Berlin because it, it, it immensely strengthens his position, the fact that his army is already in most of the territories that he covets. Mm. OK, let's go to the first scene then. We're going to go to the 4th of February in 1945. And um, you can tell us whereabouts we'll be and we'll have a look around because this is absolutely crucial. So, yes, we're going to uh, now uh, zoom in onto the, uh, the Crimea. We have uh, Churchill and Roosevelt fly in to uh, this airfield, Saki airfield, which incidentally was attacked uh, bombed, bombed very recently. Uh, it was on. Oh, is this the same one? Yeah. Exactly the yeah. same airport. They fly in Roosevelt and Churchill, uh, and then they're driven on this horrendous five-hour drive uh, down to Yalta in the south of the Crimea, which is a city in ruins. I mean, this is this is a sort of Riviera of the Soviet Union at the time. It's a beautiful place, all palm trees and beaches and wonderful 19th century villas, but it's been occupied by the Wehrmacht. They've pretty much trashed the place and it's been hastily sort of repaired for this meeting of the big three, 
The big three, of course, are Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin. Why did they choose Yalta? What was the rationale behind that? Or was it just Stalin's choice and he invited them? Largely because Stalin refused to travel by air. He was absolutely terrified of flying. And so uh, there were numerous places were suggested to hold this conference. Um, and Stalin said, no, he vetoed all of them. He said, look, I'll come, but it has to be in Yalta which he could go to, he could go, get to by train. And this was an authentic fear of his. It wasn't a bit of clever politicking, which we associate with him. No, I think he genuinely um, was terrified of flying. Um, he flew, he, I think he'd only flown once before, and that was to the Tehran conference, which had happened, you know, uh, a, shortly, uh, a short while before. And he, he'd been absolutely terrified on that flight. And notably, when, when there was a final conference in Potsdam some months later in the summer of 1945, he came by train to that as well. So I think genuinely he was terrified of flying. And Roosevelt has to come even further. I mean, he's coming all the way from Washington, you know, stopping off in the Mediterranean on the way. And let's remember, I mean, many listeners uh, and viewers may well know the very famous photo of the three leaders sitting outside one of the great grand villas in Yalta, sitting on their bench, looking rather smug, uh, the victorious partners, you know. But if you look more carefully at that photo, it's it's quite disturbing because Roosevelt is a dying man. You know, he he will be dead within a couple of months. So he's very, very sick and weak when he flies in to Yalta. And, and many people said he was really not up being at this incredibly important, you know, conference, inter international conference to decide the fate of the world. And likewise with Churchill, Churchill was, was not on form at, at the Yalta. I mean, all of his aides, uh, there's a numerous accounts of uh, one of uh, Alexander Cadogan, his, one of his most senior aides said, you know, he, if only he'd stopped drinking bucketfuls of champagne. He was drinking way, way too much. Um, he was not on form. He was rambling. Roosevelt also was rambling. The one person who was on form, who knew exactly what he wanted and knew exactly how he was going to get it was Stalin. This was the conference where really he he got on paper what he wanted from his partners. We often talk about Churchill as being one of history's great functioning alcoholics. And it seems that he was drinking an extraordinary amount at this point. You, you write at length in the book of, of, about these shipments of wine and champagne and everything which is coming in. I mean, what was going on there? Was it was he just so excited to have a holiday? Was he full of bravado because the war had turned in the Allies' favour? He was established now as a national hero. Was it some deeper personality defect? Or was he playing a game that he thought was going to... I mean, did he think that he could get Stalin drunk and elicit from him what he wanted? Do you have some perspective on what was going on yeah, behind Yeah, it's very the interesting because there's so much is written about Churchill's drinking. And I was somewhat sceptical about it, I have to say. Um, and it was only when I read all the, uh, the sort of private accounts by his aides, the people working really closely with him, who said, no, he really was drinking far too much. And perhaps it was stress, it was pressure. You know, this is the end of the war. They're exhausted. He clearly liked to drink as well, you know. So I think it was possibly a mixture of all of those. Um, what was is interesting when you mentioned about Stalin, and, and certainly Stalin, at these lavish banquets that they held, held at Yalta, because each of the three rulers uh, 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 had their own banquet, uh, at which there was lashings of alcohol was served at these. But it's interesting that Stalin 
always had a vodka glass in front of him, always had a wine glass in front of him, but very, very rarely drank from them. And in fact, uh, the vodka glass was invariably filled with water. So uh, maybe when he was in the privacy of his own dacha, he drank heavily. But certainly at these crucial meetings, Stalin was wily, he was sober, and... Uh, you know, it's. I've been reading a lot about Stalin recently, actually, for, for a new book I'm researching at the moment. And, um, of course, he was a monster. He was responsible for the death of millions of people. But when he needed to get something, he was highly effective at getting it and a supremely shrewd political operator. Mm, comes across very powerfully in the book that he was the one there who was neither unwell nor inebriated, but but he he went with a very clear set of objectives. I mean, the, the the title of the book is Checkmate in Berlin. There's this idea people always used to say that the the Russians are the best chess players in the world. Well, the Grand Master really was Stalin. Wasn't I think he? so, but I think as we'll come maybe come on to this, but I think he overreached himself in Berlin. Actually, I think he he misplayed it. He misjudged the Americans. Uh, we, 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 later in the story, there's the whole Berlin airlift and uh, when, when the Western sectors have been sealed off by the Soviets. I think in his game of chess, he overplayed his hand. And, um, you know, the, 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 it, it's interesting that the commandants on the ground saw themselves as playing a game of chess, a strategic game of chess. And, and they, by, by 1949, they felt that they were winning on the chessboard. But if if we stick with with the chess metaphor for a moment, these are the first moves of the game, really, aren't they? Because I'm not sure how much face to face interaction there had been between the three of them before. Obviously, they'd been working together intensively over the over the previous years, but there, there was a great deal of complexity within those relationships. I mean, even if you one of the things we've spoken about on this podcast before is the the Katyn massacre, and we know that the British. Um, had an awareness of what Stalin had done to the, the Polish, for example. And so there's a there's a front there, isn't there? There's a lot of um, theatrical kind of diplomacy which is going on, but beneath which there's, there must have been a hell of a lot of suspicion as well. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating because for all his political career, um, Churchill had absolutely detested the Soviet regime. He'd done everything he could to strangle it at birth. I mentioned, you know, landing the British troops in 1918, 1919 to try and kill off the Red Army and Lenin's Bolsheviks, you know. And repeatedly throughout the years that followed, Churchill had sort of lambasted the, uh, the Soviet regime. He, he, he absolutely detested it. But this was a classic case of my enemy's enemy is my friend. You know, when Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, suddenly... Uh, Churchill looks around and thinks we've got to have that guy on our side because that's our surest way to defeat the Nazis. So it was a balance, you know. Basically, he had to decide which is the lesser of two evils. You know, is it is it now is it Hitler or is it Stalin? By the time he gets mm. to, I've just and got, I think... got a little quote in front of me. By the time Churchill gets to Yalta, listen what he's saying at one of his banquets. He says it is no exaggeration or compliment of a florid kind when I say that we regard Marshal Stalin's life as most precious to the hopes and hearts of us all. We have a friend in whom we can trust, and I hope he will continue to feel the same about us. This is absolutely extraordinary that Churchill, the man who's detested Stalin for his entire political career, comes to Yalta and heralds him as one of the great saviour of, of, of the world, you know. A, a really 
dramatic mm. turnaround there. Absolutely. There's another line from the book where you um, mentioned Churchill talking to Anthony Eden, and, and he has some foresight here because he's saying that if there's no kind of accord reached between these different parties, different countries, different personalities, um, World War Three is a possibility. Is that right at that time? Yeah, and this is good to go back to where we were at the very beginning in the National Archives. There is a folder which I got out and found in the National Archives, and it's simply a, a grey folder, box file, marked Operation Unthinkable. And this is the most extraordinary set of documents I, I, I've seen in years, I think, because this was Churchill's plan to attack the Soviet Union in 1945. So uh, he was um, extremely worried by the uh, enormous power that Stalin and his Red Army were going to have at the end of the war. And he actually asked his chiefs of staff to put it to start planning a massive attack on the Soviet Union uh, carried out by the British and by the Americans. Um, it, it, it's just, it. I mean, it's called Operation Unthinkable. It really sort of it is unthinkable. And, and Churchill realized that the, the Western armies were um, so much smaller in scale than the Red Army, but he thought we'll need more troops to give us any chance of success against Stalin's Red Army. So what does he propose to do? He proposes to bring the Wehrmacht, Hitler's war machine, on the side of the Western allies. And not only that, he wants to use the SS uh, as part of the, to, to, to spearhead this attack on the Soviet Union. At which point, you know, the chiefs of staff duly plan this for him and give him, give him this dossier, but they do warn him, this would be politically unthinkable to do this. The British public simply, and the American public as well, would simply never accept that this wartime ally we've been lauding for the last four years, the Soviet Union, we're now going to launch a massive attack and try and destroy it. That's the most extraordinary archive. Do you know when that dates to? Is this around the time of the Alta Conference, or um, would it have been late? Shortly afterwards. It's the late spring of 1945, and all the documents, and they're very, very detailed. I mean, they lay out, they set out in a very detailed plan exactly the dispositions of the Soviet forces, how many tanks they've got, how many aircraft they've got, correspondingly, how many the Western powers have got. So it, it really sets out. Um, how are they going to try and bring this about and crush the Soviet Union in the after, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War? Wow. Well, that's um, it. Almost feels like another novel for Robert Harris, doesn't it? That that story. Um, <laughs> Who I was maybe listening, we to, listening to only this morning on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll leave that one to him. But it, it really is an appropriately named um, uh, document for once. Let me just ask you broadly what happens at Yalta. What take us through when the conference finishes? What what's been decided? So each each of the big the, the big three they have their sort of wish list, if you want. I suppose Churchill, top of his wish list, I guess, is he wants to preserve the integrity of the British Empire. That's really his thing. That's going to be uh, very difficult in the aftermath of the war. Roosevelt, uh, top of his wish list. Well, two things really. He wants the Soviets to join the war against Japan because it's proving enormously costly in American lives. He wants the might of the Red Army to be used against Japan. And he also wants Stalin to sign up to a new body, which is going to be formed, an international body to be known as the United Nations. Um, what does Stalin want? He wants, uh, as I said earlier, he wants to retain all the territories that the Red Army is already in control of. Mm. And then the big question which really hangs over the conference is what to do with Germany. And this is this is the big decision. And this is where they really 
thrash out through days and days of arguments, sitting around this big round table with all their advisors, their interpreters, what have you, what to do with, uh, with, with Germany. Well, they decide and they agree um, that Germany will be divided into two separate parts. The Soviets are going to get the east of Germany and the Western powers, the Americans and the British and afterwards the French, are going to get West Germany. But then there's a question, the, great, the greatest prize of all, if you like, is Berlin. Hitler's capital, now in ruins. Uh, who gets Berlin? Berlin sits fairly and squarely in the middle of Soviet-occupied Germany. But the Western powers want a slice of Berlin. So they decide to do exactly what they're going to do with Germany. They're going to do with Berlin as well. Berlin is going to be split into two. The Soviets will get the east of the city. And the Western powers, the Brits, the Americans and the French, will get the west of the city. But there is one problem. You talked about your love of maps earlier. You only have to look at a map to see the potential problem because Berlin, as I said, sits squarely in the uh, Soviet sector of occupied Germany. And the only route into the city for the Western allies is one autobahn and one railway line. And it doesn't take a genius to look at a map and think, well, hold on a minute. If the Soviets cut the autobahn and cut the railway, then the Western powers would be stuck in Western Berlin and unable to bring in any supplies to their military garrisons and to the people in their sectors of the city. And I, I'm jumping ahead here, but, but this is already, already in 1945. Those on the ground are, are thinking, we're in a bit of a medieval mm. castle situation here. You mm. know, if they pull up the drawbridges, we're kind of stuck inside. It's going to be like a siege. Mm. And of course, this is exactly what's going to play out. You've got a memorable line in the book, which is uh, Berlin was an island surrounded by Red Sea, and so it becomes. But let's go to Berlin, because that seems to be the city at the very heart of the book. Um, it's the place on everyone's mind, Yalta, because there's a real race to get there first. And we're going to go there on the 2nd of May, 1945. Now, I imagine a lot of people who um, know World War II chronology well will have some ideas about early May 1945. Hitler would be dead by this point. Um what else is happening? What What's specific on that day? So, yeah, just to very quickly set the scene, the, this massive Soviet army and two, two giant armies, really, have advanced into Berlin. Uh, they fought their way into the centre of the Berlin. Uh, you're right, Hitler's dead. The old regime has collapsed. Uh, Berlin is a city in total ruins. And the Soviets are there, and they are in control of the city, and they alone have, have, have won this city. And they want to uh, have some sort of tangible, visible, uh, uh, memorable image uh, to show that they have captured the city. So what happens is this, um, this photographer, Soviet photographer called Yevgeny Kaldai, and he wants to produce a very, very striking image that could be flashed around the world to show, look, we took this city and you, the Western powers, the Americans and Brits, you had no part in it. So he decides that the Reichstag is the most, you know, the most well-known building in the city. He wants to take a picture of the red, a giant red flag, Soviet flag, flying over the Reichstag. But he has a problem. Um, it, it, this is on the 1st of May. He, he looks around for a red flag and there isn't one. So he flies back to Moscow on one of the numerous flights going backwards and forwards, gets his uncle, who's a tailor, to get a big red tablecloth and sew on a hammer and sickle onto this tablecloth. And then he flies back to Berlin, and on the 2nd of May, he goes to the Reichstag with this giant tablecloth flag, gets a few <laughs> soldiers, takes them up onto the roof, and hoists the flag, you know, over the Reichstag and takes his picture. Now, 
Some viewers, listeners will be familiar with a very, very famous iconic picture of the Stars and Stripes being raised over Iwo Jima, which was taken by an American photographer called Joe Rosenthal. If you look at the two photos, that one and the flag over the Reichstag, they are strikingly similar. And this is because Yevgeny Kaldai had seen that photo of the Stars and Stripes being raised over Iwo Jima and said, I'm going to do exactly the same for Berlin. And sure enough, he takes this photo. It's fabulously dr dramatic. And um, we, we should stress that point, actually. I mean, yes. we'll, we'll, we'll put one up on the episode uh, page if we can get the copyright. I'm not sure if we'll be able to, but if we can, we'll put one up. So you can see this photograph because it's got that grainy black and white film of the of, of the era. But it's the, the smoke, the room buildings, there's the elevation, there's the kind of murky light, which we um, probably associate with Berlin at that time. And the composition, as you say, is just striking, isn't it? You've got the angled flag going across and the, you know, the kind of hammer and sickle, like kind of falling out beneath. It's quite a thing. It's quite a thing. And there's one fascinating detail on that photo. On the original photo that Keldai took, you have sol soldiers stretching out their arms towards the flagpole. And when you, if you look very, very closely at the original photo, the soldier with it, with his two arms outstretched, has got a wristwatch on each arm, and clearly he's looted them from some poor Berliner. And uh, when the censor, Soviet censors saw this, they said to Keldai, um, "Do you think you can just scratch out those wristwatches because they're a bit embarrassing, you know?" So he scratched out the wristwatches. He made the photo more grainy and darker, with smoke billowing in the background. And then this was the, the finished photo. And as Stalin had intended. This was flashed around the world. This became really the iconic image of, of the end of the war, if you like. Uh, and it really did exactly what it was intended to do. It showed that the Soviet army, that the Red Army alone, without the help, without the support, without the need of the Americans and British, had taken Hitler's capital. And this is the founding stone of that great narrative that runs even through to today's society in Russia of the great patriotic war, the great victory against the Nazis that we hear Putin talking about so so often today. But you, you've, you've already hinted at something else we've got to talk about um, here. So um, we have early May, the, the Red Army has arrived in Berlin. There's a lot of looting happening, isn't there? And probably we should connect this to maybe Yalta in Crimea, where you said that was a city that was trashed. There's a certain or a very powerful element of revenge that's going on, isn't there, here? Very much so. So um, what's basically the Red Army have come into Berlin, they've captured the city, and the Western Allies are still hundreds of miles from the city. And what happens is that the Red Army basically have two months in which to loot to pillage and to rape. And they will take full advantage of these two months to basically strip Berlin of anything of value that's left in the city. Now, many people will have been to Berlin and will know, you know, it's one of the great cultural capitals of, of Western Europe, Western civilization. I mean, some of the, the museums on Museum Island, this vast complex of museums, were stuffed full of, you know, Renaissance masterpieces, statues, Byzantine altarpieces, you name it, it was there in Berlin. And it had been very handily packed up by the Nazis and put into um, concrete bunkers to stop it getting damaged during the bombardment of the city. What the Soviets now do is simply they pack it up and they cart it back to Moscow. And this is not just a few boxes being taken back. This is tens of thousands of giant crates of all the greatest treasures of Western civilization are packed up and carted back, uh, taken back to Moscow. 
like the State Museum in Moscow, just one of the museums that receives stuff, got 12,500 enormous crates of masterpieces from Berlin. So this was on a huge scale. And, and the, the, um, the, the Soviet regime, they even sent in their best museum curators from Moscow to come to Berlin to start sifting through what, what they really wanted, basically. So, so you've got this loot going on. At the same time, you've got rape taking place on a, on a hideous uh, scale. Um, uh, the, the, the Red Army, the young soldiers who are often drunk, drunk with victory, but also drunk on alcohol, they were encouraged by propaganda being churned out by the Red Army to take their revenge on, on, on German women. Um, and, you know, their own countries have been trashed, their own daughters, uh, mothers had been raped. So they took their revenge. Uh, and, but a, a absolutely terrible time to be a woman in Berlin at the time. Um, and I've read numerous extremely harrowing accounts of what took place. And then the, the last sort of um, element of this was the pillage that took place in the Western sectors, because, as I say, the Russians know that the, the Western allies are going to come into the city within a, within a few weeks. In fact, it's two months. So they go into the Western sectors and they strip everything they can find, everything of value, everything that could be of use to the, to the Soviet regime is taken. So many of the big factories, you know, the big industrial plants in Berlin at this time, like Osram, you know, the light bulb manufacturers, um, these factories still existed. They'd been damaged in the war, but there was still all the heavy plant machinery in these places. That was all unbolted from the floor and carted back to, to the Soviet Union, back to Moscow. So that when the allies arrive in their sectors of the city, they find literally there's just nothing left. The place has been completely stripped bare. So it, it was a, the Soviets really took great advantage of those two months to, you know, take take whatever they could and take it back. To it's it. one of the most affecting uh, sections in the book, I think, because um, there's almost a manic nature to the looting. The more looting happens, the more people are driven on, and we we're driven really into human psychology here. There's there's many years of war that stands behind this, which leads, um, I, I suppose, to this kind of very fervent behaviour. But it's not just the cultural riches that are taken back to the the museums, as you say. It's it's everything. It's like the screws in the machine factories. Everything goes from from the big thing to the little thing. And one line I remember from from reading the book is that. Um, I think at one point you say that the only thing that stopped um, looted goods being carried back from the west to the east was the fact that the, some of the train tracks had been like kind of levered up, and so they couldn't drive the trains over anymore. So there was, you know, that could have actually looted the train tracks in in some ways. So it was a wholesale stripping. It is. And, and actually, there's remarkable similarities between you know the stories that are coming out of Ukraine of young. Russian soldiers now sort of taking taking away dishwashers and things like that and sending them back home again. This is exactly what was taking place. I mean, all Berliners who still had radios, they had to hand those in. They had to they had to hand in anything that they had of value. And those were those the smaller items were often looted by um, by Russian soldiers. And there are extraordinary stories of um, Russian so young Russian conscripts, you know, taking out taps from people's houses and sending those back home. And they're sending them back to villages in Siberia that don't even have running water. I mean, what they thought they were going to do with these taps, I just don't know. So th there's a level of absurdity to it as well. Mm, there absolutely is. Let's just um, talk very quickly about Hitler because we're so close. We're on the second and we know that he died a few days before. Today, the narrative is pretty well established of what happened 
um, and his downfall famously. But um, at the time, there was no such clarity. I mean, there's there's a, a city in ruins, a leader which is this, this great tyrant who's noticeably absent. Um, a word on this, really, because I think you write about it in the book um, in a very interesting manner. There's... Um, from from the beginning, Stalin seizes control of the narrative about what happened to Adolf Hitler, doesn't he? Yes. So what actually happens is that the Soviets they discover this uh, jawbone uh, with its with teeth intact. They manage to contact uh, Hitler's dental nurse, and her account, which is pretty harrowing in itself, is is fully set out in my book. But she takes him uh, into the um, Hitler's bunker, where the dental record, his dental records are kept, and they managed to compare the jawbone. They found this charred jawbone because, of course, Hitler's corpse has been burned. They managed to compare this jawbone and the teeth with his dental records, and they know for absolute certainty that Hitler is dead, and this is his jawbone. But as you say, Stalin thinks actually it would serve my purpose to keep Hitler alive. Because this could be very useful, because I can I can uh, pretend or I can say or spill the story that the um, Western allies are hiding Hitler. They've captured him and they're keeping him in hiding. And he uses this to sort of devious effect over over the coming, you know, well, the year that follows, really. It's extraordinary, really, that, you know, he is already this wartime alliance that, you know, the war is hardly at an end. And he's already thinking how he can get one up on on his so-called Western partners. And that's by um, inventing a story that Hitler escaped, has been captured by the Western allies, and they're looking after him. They're keeping him in safety. Mm. What happens to Elena? I'm going to try and um, pronounce her surname. It's a bit beyond my uh, no, ability. It's a tragic story. This is the story of the dental nurse. Yeah, so she, she, she has a sad story, doesn't she? It is a sad story because she's done everything she's asked to do. She takes them to the dental records. They find the dental records. They prove that the bone, the teeth belong to Hitler and everything. And then she's, um, Stalin doesn't want this story to get out because that's the truth. And so he has her arrested and she's sent off to like a gulag and spends, you know, years in prison camp for merely telling the truth. It's, it's an awful story. Or for uh, knowing too much. She yeah. ends up, she does eventually get back to Germany totally broken by the experience of what's happened. If this week's episode has inspired you to go on your own search for hidden stories through time, why not join a trip organised by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours? Covering subjects from archaeology and history through to music, art and wildlife, Ace have over 60 years of experience in group travel. From tales of smugglers and stonemasons on the Romney marshes to cultural exchanges along the Silk Road, there are plenty of departures on offer in the UK as well as further afield. Each tour is led and hosted by an expert lecturer who can often provide exclusive visits and will help you to explore a subject in detail. Following a fantastic year with highlights including a musical cruise along the Danube, ACE are looking forward to more adventures in 2023. To find out more or to request a copy of ACE's brand new brochure, you can visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Let's go to the 1st of July, 1945. There's a change in Berlin, and you're going to tell us what happens on that day. 
So at long last, two months after the Soviets have arrived in the city, the Western allies arrive. And at their head is the really the protagonist and the hero, if you like, of my book, which is the American commandant, the man who's to become the American commandant, the commandant of the American sector of Berlin, I should say, Colonel Frank Howling Mad Howley. And he is just a fabulous character. He's a real, true sort of all-American cowboy, basically, that the Americans are going to send into the city to run their sector. Howley is a highly experienced individual. He's a brilliant, um, brilliant with logistics. He's br brilliant at bringing order to chaos, if you like. He's the one that managed to keep Paris fed um, in the immediate aftermath of the liberation. He's a guy that doesn't believe in any rules unless they're his, his own. He doesn't believe in red tape unless it's a red tape that he's you know put in place, basically. He is a doer. He gets things done and um, he swings into town uh, like this, as I say, this all-American cowboy, determined to take over his sectors of the city. And and he goes there in good faith. He he thinks that, well, uh, the Germans are the enemy still and the Russians are our ally, wartime allies. But within, really within hours of reaching the city, in fact, even when he's en route to the city, crossing that sea of red, which we mentioned earlier, into the western sectors of the city, he suddenly begins to dawn on him that perhaps these allies aren't allies any longer. And perhaps the enemy Germans aren't enemies any longer. And perhaps the world has undergone a profound shift in just a few short weeks. And perhaps we're now allied with the wrong side and we should be actually working with the Germans and against the Soviets. And this is this sort of this great realization that actually the world has shifted. And Howley is thinking this long in advance of anything that's taking place in Washington or in Whitehall. He's on the ground and he sees that these guys, these wartime allies, the Russians, the Soviets, the Red Army, they cannot be trusted. And so from day one, when he's in Berlin, we begin to see the world has shifted and there is beginning, the beginnings already of a physio, if you like, of a conflict between the Western powers and the Soviets. If we were to be um, sat in the back of Howley's Jeep on, on the 1st of July watching him, like, what, what kind of character is he? I mean, you, you've talked about when you spend time with these characters and in the research and you get to kind of have a real sense of what they're like and what they're going to do, what, what's going on in their mind. Could you talk about like kind of him as a decision maker on the ground where, you know, you have to often make very tight judgment calls in a very short space of time and um, things aren't always what they seem, especially um, with the Russians playing these quite advanced psychological games and often doing the opposite to what they're professing that they're doing. Um, how did Howley operate? So, yeah, if you just talk about him in a in a way that animates him for the listener, please. First of all, you, you mentioned a Jeep. Howley would not travel in a Jeep. Howley mm. rode into uh, Berlin at the head of an amazing armoured convoy. He himself was travelling the front car, which was a Horch Roadster, which is sort of the Rolls-Royce of Nazi Germany, if you like, with, a, with um, the stars and stripes flying from the fenders. He had the, all the chrome polished. He was a showman, and this was his greatest theatrical moment. So he arrives in Berlin at the head behind him, are hundreds and hundreds of tanks. He's had them all repainted. They've all got the stars and stripes flying, you know, everywhere. It's a very, it's a piece, a masterful piece of pageantry. And this is sort of um, Howley all over. He, he was a showman and he, this is, this is a, a great triumph for him. 
Now, how's he going to deal with the Soviets? So there are two there are two important things I think to say is that each um, commandant would would run their own sector. So Colonel Howley will run the American sector. There'll be a, a British brigadier running the British sector. But also they realize that Berlin as a whole, the city as a whole, has to have some sort of body um, in, in which they can discuss issues that affect the city as a whole, for, like rationing, for example, would, would, would be one of these. And this is where the four commandants will meet on a weekly basis in this building called the Commandatura in Berlin. And this is where Howley, I mean, it's wonderful because Howley really... Um, shows his true colours here, where he um, constantly is on the attack against his Soviet counterpart, General Alexander Kotikov. Um, and he is adamant that, uh, that he's going to win this battle. He's not going to allow the Soviets to ever get the upper hand. And so you have this sort of titanic clash of wills, between, particularly between Colonel Howley and, and his Soviet opposite number. And what's rather extraordinary about what took place in the Commandatura Two things, really. When I was in Berlin and I went to the building and at the door, uh, the front door was open and I sort of pushed my way in. And eventually someone said, what are you doing here? And uh, I, I said, well, I would explain what I was doing. And I said, I wanted to see uh, the first floor where, Je where Colonel Howley met with his other commandants. And the chap took me up there. And the room was absolutely unchanged since 1945. Nothing, I've got photos of it. It had the same table, the same chairs, the same chandeliers. Everything was the same. So I felt I'd walked into this sort of time machine, if you like. And the other thing to say is that every single word ever spoken in that room, every insult, every barbed jibe from Colonel Howley, everything was recorded because there was a team of stenographers writing down every single word. So I had this fascinating snapshot of time, if you like, between 45 and 49, where I could almost reconstruct exactly what was taking place, exactly how these relationships was steadily breaking down. How Howley realizes that the Soviets can no longer be trusted, that they're a bunch of gangsters, basically. And he says, when you're dealing with gangsters, you treat them like gangsters. And, and all his, his arguments, his ferocious rows that took place in the Commandatura, we have an exact record of them. For, and for writing a book like this, this was absolutely priceless material. So did you find him in a way... I mean, what what was your judgment of Howley in the end? Did you find him an inspiring character? Was he a reassuring character? Was he the kind of person that you trusted when he was in the room, that he brought a sense of order over things? Or was he more of the maverick that you you point out? There's a nice line in the book where you say he had a he had a knack of just doing everything a little bit better than everybody else, which I think is a, a nice, nice description. But um I think the important thing about Howley, first of all, was he was effective. He got things done. He'd, he'd run the port of Cherbourg, which was in ruins shortly after D-Day. As I said, he'd fed you know five million starving Parisians, kept them alive. So he did get things done. Um, and I think what he did also, which was extremely important, was that he said to Berliners, and this is as, as we move on through the, year, the, the years that follow, he said to the Berliners, we as Americans, and I, as Colonel Howley, the American commandant, will never abandon this city because, you know, the, the, the Soviets are trying to take control of the city. They want control of the whole of Berlin. They want to kick the Americans and British and French out of the city. And Colonel Howley, uh, in this incredibly bullish, 
upbeat press conferences that he gave in front of the world's media. Remember, the world is focused on Berlin. The world is looking at what is taking place in Berlin. And you have Colonel Howley standing up in front of the world's media saying, we will never abandon this city. And Berliners believed him. And by him saying this, he managed to keep the morale of Berliners up during this extraordinarily tense and difficult period. So I think he, he played a major role, really is a major figure in the early Cold War. So it's fascinating. Well, I think what we've got here is all the pieces on the chessboard very nicely arranged for what happens next. Howley does, we'll, we'll talk a tiny bit about the long arc of history here, but we'll leave most of it for the book. Howley plays a very big role over the next few years, doesn't he? He does, because um, Howley has realised what Washington and Whitehall have not yet realised or not accepted is that the Soviets are indeed the enemy. And, and really what Howley does um, through his actions on the ground, but also working behind the scenes, is he tries to persuade the new president, President Truman, uh, and, and the new prime minister in Britain as well, uh, and particularly Ernest Bevin, the new very important foreign secretary, that um, the Soviets can no longer be trusted and that essentially that we, we should just flip everything and that make the Germans should become our ally once again and we should accept that the Soviets are the enemy. So basically, through Howley's actions, we see a total reversal of foreign policy. Geopolitics changes dramatically in 1946, really, where you have the Truman Doctrine, you have the Marshall Plan comes into being, you know, which at its heart is saying, we're going to rebuild Germany, Western Germany, we're going to rebuild as an allied partner and we're going to accept that uh, Stalin and the Soviet Union are now the enemy. The wartime alliance is over, and there are plenty of there are plenty of reasons why this comes about. But Howley on the ground is really instrumental in 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 overseeing this dramatic shift, which basically shaped the world, the post-war world, the world we still live in now, was shaped in this period, in between 1945 and 1949. He's a, he's a fantastic character. The book's a great achievement. Um, there's so much in there that people will will read and nod along with at the same time because, as you say, it really, it really does capture a lot of what's going on with us today. We'll leave, we'll leave the history suspended there, but I'm going to put one last question to you before we finish, which is our little bit of material history. If you could bring an object back from 1945, maybe something from the journey that we've been um, along today, what would you like? Well, you know, I've sort of got one eye on the on the looting that was taking place in 1945. And I think since everyone else is looting, I think I might take a bit of loot myself. <laughs> I guess one thing that I would rather like sort of in a nice cabinet in my house would be the Schliemann gold. This is the famous gold from Troy. Uh, wonderful treasure. Um, I mean, people might remember there's a picture of Schliemann who found it, his wife dressed up as Helen of Troy, wearing all this gorgeous jewellery. Well, I think my wife would rather like that jewellery. So if I'm allowed one thing, I will, um, I'll take that, which incidentally, that treasure, which was looted in 1945, has never been returned to Berlin. Uh, some of it was, some of the loot was returned in the period when Yeltsin was in charge uh, of the, the crumbling Soviet Union. Uh, there was a sort of an accord struck with Germany and some of the treasure was sent back, but the Schliemann gold remains uh, somewhere in, the, in Russia today. But um, if I got my way, 
it would be in my house in a nice cabinet in the living room with my wife swanning around with Helen of Troy's treasure on, on in her hair. Well, that, that's quite a thought, quite a picture. I imagine you get lots of visitors <laughs> exactly. as well. <laughs> the insurance might cost me a bit. Yeah, though. you might have to have a special special box for that one. Okay, so here's a book. It's Checkmate in Berlin, Giles Milton. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much for coming on Travels Through Time. Thank you very much for having me on. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to Giles Milton about his new book. Checkmate in Berlin is out now in paperback and it comes very highly recommended by me indeed. I hope you enjoyed this trip back to 1945. I'm going to be back next week for a Remembrance Week episode with James Holland. Till then, though, goodbye.